Hey everyone, this is EJ Laws from HR Tech GTM, the most popular podcast on how HR Tech future of work companies bring their products to market. Been doing a little summer slowdown, catching some summer swell and waves. Expect that to sort of continue for the next month or two and then hopefully pick back up into the original rhythm. I have a great episode this time with Caroline Cressum from Vitalize VC. We talk about the types of companies that she is funding in this space and the work revolution how to reach out to her, and how she got into the venture. Enjoy this episode. If you have any questions or comments, as always, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is elawless. Enjoy the episode. So, hey, everyone. This is EJ Lawless from HR Tech Go to Market. I'm here today with Carolyn Kasson from Vitalize. Carolyn, would you mind give us a little intro about yourself? Yeah, thanks, EJ. I'm Caroline Casson at Vitalize. I'm a partner based in San Francisco. My background, I started my career in corporate finance at GE, had the opportunity to live all over the world from London to Chicago, Atlanta, and ultimately landed in San Francisco at GE Ventures, where I helped incubate a startup in the drone space. And then ultimately, when GE Ventures unfortunately shut down back in 2018, I took that as an opportunity to join Gale at Vitalize four years ago now. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And can you give us a little bit more introduction on Vitalize, where the fund is focused, kind of core themes? Yes. So at Vitalize, we are actually focused on what we're calling the work revolution. So. Mm. We define that as, you could think of it as future of work, but we define it as people-first, data-driven, category-defining businesses. So what that means is a really big idea that disrupts an existing process or the way something is done within a business today. So it's not just like um, an HR tool, which I think a lot of people think of future of work as like an HR tool or an add-on or something like that. What we're investing in is huge category defining ideas that will really shape the way of the future of work. Quick context on Vitalize. We have kind of a unique model where we have a venture fund and an angel community operating side by side, which is how we're able to add a lot of value to our portfolio companies. So our venture fund invests at the seed stage in these work revolution businesses. And then our angel community invests at the pre-seed stage stage in the same types of companies. So if we see deals that are a little bit too early for our fund, we'll often bring them to our angel community and invest that way, and then kind of continue to track those companies and invest in the top performers when they reach their next round out of our fund. So that's That's kind of our unique model. A couple questions as follow up there. So one, when you talk about these revolutions of work, what portfolio companies or other companies come to mind as defining this category for you? Yeah. So so two recent investments that should be announced here shortly that I think really fit this category well. One is called SquarePeg. So this is an end-to-end sourcing and recruiting tool that not only just helps source and screen candidates, but all the way through the recruiting and hiring process. And so that's a good example because it's it's the end-to-end solution that replaces existing tools throughout the process today. It replaces multiple different tools that are used. So things like that, where it's a really big idea, completely disrupting an existing way that something is done. Another investment that should be announced here soon is called WorkMade. We're really excited about this one. It is actually in the gig economy, which we've been watching for a while now. We think the gig economy is going to continue to explode and grow over the next 
couple of years. And so what WorkMade does is it's a tool for freelancers to automatically manage their finances, their taxes, and kind of everything that they do on the back end and make all of that seamless. I personally, I'm not a freelancer, but find taxes really confusing and frustrating. Mm -hmm. I, I never really know what's going on there. And so to be able to just like plug in some information and have it do everything for you, especially for these folks who are working at various companies on various projects is huge for them. And it's a unique, it's a unique tool as well, because it's built by freelancers who have been in the industry for a long time freelancing. So they really understand the problem. We're excited about that and the the problem that they're solving. So those are kind of two recent examples. That's great. Th- thanks for those. I think that just helps provide that sort of tangible, concrete example. Now, you mentioned the angel community, and that's interesting, and the potential value add there. What types of people are in your angel community? Good question. So something else that's unique about us and about our angel community in particular is that we actually enable non-accredited investors as well as accredited investors to be a part of our angel community, which is we were kind of a first mover in that space. It's something that not a lot of groups are doing because there is a, a burden and a heavy lift there on our side with getting past like the SEC accreditation regulations. So basically how it works is we partner with WeFunder on the back end to basically what we're doing is is technically crowdfunding, but on the front end, it operates like a standard angel SPV. So it's one line item on the company's cap table. Because of this partnership that we've set up, it requires minimal work on the founder's side. We just have to satisfy the requirements and like the legal paperwork for the SEC on the back end. So Founders have been loving this model because they want more diversity on their cap tables. We're constantly mm. having founders ask us, how can I get more diversity on on my cap table? And so we ultimately spent about eight months researching how we could make this happen and ultimately landed on this model for Vitalize Angels last year, launched in September, have since invested in nine deals out of that community and about $750,000 deployed out of that community to date. So we're excited about what we're doing there. We It's definitely an uphill battle with the SEC. We hope at some point they'll relax crowdfunding regulations to make you know diverse investors more accessible to founders. But but that's kind of how the model works in the meantime. Yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. I, you know, I think I'm actually in the community. I didn't realize that about the WeFunder piece. And so that's interesting to understand how that works in the background. I've certainly seen with WeFunder and with Republic the ability to bring in more non-accredited investors and make this more accessible, this type of investment more accessible. So that's, that's great. Definitely. Yeah. I think we'll start to see more of it kind of supplementing traditional investing. So more crowdfunding happening alongside traditional venture investing is kind of what I foresee happening, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I, that, I think that that makes sense to me. You know, going and thinking about the types of companies that Vitalize invests in, do you have stage or attraction as well that you focus on? Yeah, so I've, everyone defines it a little differently, but for the angel community, like I said, we do pre-seed and how we think about pre-seed is there is a product already built. Perhaps it might be in beta or it might be fully built, but it's in the very early stages of generating revenue, maybe hasn't gone to market yet. Um, that's how we think about pre-revenue. So we don't, or how we think about pre-seed. So we don't have like 
set requirements for deals that we look at for the angel community. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of our venture fund at the seed stage, we do like to see a couple hundred thousand in annual recurring revenue to, to just really have some proven traction and proven metrics. We have Gail and I collectively have invested in over a hundred deals and across all of our data, we've seen growth rates really matter at even at the very early stage. So We like to look at revenue growth month over month, quarter over quarter, even in the very early stage, even when it's very minimal revenue, those growth rates are still important. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we look at in terms of like round size. Everyone thinks of the different stages differently, but we tend to invest in round sizes between two and four million for our venture fund. So that's the seed stage. And then less than 2 million would be a better fit for the angel community. Got it. That That's helpful. I think the, the hundred companies is interesting. Is that over the past three to four years or is that over the past, say one to two years? And really where I'm thinking about it, that question is how have things changed and how are things changing in light of the market environment and conditions yeah this was over the past i would say five to ten years so the history of really quick and then i'll answer your question about the markets but the the history of how vitalized came to be is gail had started an angel community in 2012 called irish angels which is made up of notre dame alumni as the investors oh wow so she was early I feel yeah, like. she, she was really early in the space and that's how she got her start. When I joined her in 2018, it was at Irish Angels that I joined her and then ultimately launched Vitalize and kind of moved on to focus solely on Vitalize. But it was collectively, when I say the hundred deals, it's at Irish Angels and at Vitalize. That's how many deals we've invested in. So we've, we've seen yeah. a lot there. But in terms of from the early days till now, what's changed, it's interesting there's a lot of talk that we might be entering a recession. There's a lot of uncertainty in the market. I I think what's important for founders and what we're coaching founders on right now is the importance of capital efficiency. We've always liked companies that tend to be more capital efficient and we try not to get caught up in like the hot Silicon Valley deals that are raising tons and tons of money. And I think that's even more important going into this like unknown territory because funding is going to be harder to come by. The companies that are going to make it through this are the ones that don't have to raise a lot and that can do a lot with a little bit of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're encouraging and making sure all of our companies have enough runway to make it through the next like 12 to 15 or even 12 to 18 months. And so, yeah, I would say capital efficiency is really important. We're seeing at like the Series B stage that it's harder and harder to raise. I Right now, we have a number of companies raising Series A's, and that's been fine so far. But once you get to B and later, it's I think a lot of those later stage investors are pausing right now just due to the uncertainty. So that's something we're just kind of coaching our founders to be on the lookout for and just make sure they have enough runway again to, to make it through. But some of the most successful companies have been started during recessions. Like I think if I'm not mistaken, Uber and Lyft were both started around 2008. So it's definitely not a time to stop investing. We're still actively investing and staying on track with our deployment period of three years, but just making sure that we're looking for those companies that are more capital efficient and being selective in in what we invest in. Got it. That, that, that's helpful. 
you know, when you're talking about capital efficiency, one of the things that kind of occurs to me is different business models and also sort of different company structures. And so do you have a preference for marketplace or SaaS? And then how do you think about gross margins? And I think about staffing and placement and job advertising and sort of like recruiting can have gross margins anywhere from like 20% to 80%, depending on how things are structured, which I think is different from maybe traditional, like full software, where it's like usually 80% gross margin. So how do you think about all that? And I know that's a lot of questions in one, so yeah. I can break it down too. I would say we tend to be more traditional where we're, we generally stick to the more traditional, higher gross margins, pure B2B software plays. We actually only invest technically in B2B SaaS. We've done a couple marketplaces here and there, and we've done a couple of investments where there's a consumer component, but it's really, they have some type of B2B SaaS angle. And so that's, yeah, for us, it is important to have those higher margins. We really won't invest in companies that aren't purely SaaS or that, you know, have more of a services component. It's less of a fit for us just because we do think to have that kind of 30x potential, which is what we we look for companies that could have a 30x cash on cash return for our investors to get those kind of returns, you really have to be the peer, the peer software play in most cases. Understood. Yeah. Are you primarily looking at the US market? Or are you investing outside of the US in different geographies? Yeah, I've been getting that question a lot lately. We stick to the US market only. For us, I think it's just what we know best. We don't have boots on the ground in other markets. We just don't know those markets as well. So wouldn't really feel as comfortable making an investment there unless for some reason there was something that like blew us away about it or you know, other investors that we trust have done a lot of diligence on it or something like that. But it also gets complicated just legally with investing in different entities outside of the US. So to answer your question, we've only ever stuck to US incorporated businesses. But I do know a lot of folks that that invest outside of the US. And it's interesting to hear how different people think about that. When you're looking at US SaaS, are you primarily having those people sell into or are you primarily seeing that your companies sell into HR? Or does it vary across department, whether it's operations, marketing, finance, et cetera? Yeah, ours, our investments have all varied. Like I said, we don't, we don't invest in just HR tech. So we've invested in fintech where they're selling into finance. We've invested mm. in marketing tech where they're kind of selling in more to the marketing teams. We've invested in softwares that are more selling into the sales team. So for us, it really varies, I would say, across marketing, HR, sales, finance, you name it. Yeah, we're, we're definitely not just selling into HR. Okay. I, I know you mentioned early on your GE experience. Has that GE experience shaped how you think about investing? Yeah, that's a way? great question. It definitely has for me. I think that's why I get excited about future of work because I worked at a place that could benefit from a lot of these tools that I evaluate today. So in the back of my mind, whenever I'm evaluating a company, I'm part of me is thinking like, would I have found this useful in my job at GE? Cause I worked across a lot of different, I was in corporate finance, but like worked with a lot of different functions and saw a lot while I was there. So it's always interesting to think about like, would this have been useful? For example, mm -hmm. we 
somewhat recently invested in a company called Cloud Eagle, which is building a basically SaaS man, a management platform to manage all the different SaaS applications that a business might be subscribed to. For example, let's mm. say you are subscribed to Zoom. Well, at Vitalize, for example, we all have different Zoom accounts that we all put on our company credit card, but maybe there's a team plan that we don't know of that actually we could be saving money if we all went on that team plan. So it makes recommendations like that for you. Like, oh, you guys should be on this team plan or you should consider this other video conferencing platform. And here's all your SaaS subscriptions and what you're paying for everything. And so a tool like that is a really good example of one where it could have been really helpful at GE if we had something like mm. that at the time. And so, yeah, to answer your question, it definitely shapes how I think about investing today. It was great to have that like large company experience prior to getting into investing because I think it really helps shape the way I evaluate deals. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and I guess you're not only looking at enterprise type SaaS, right? You're also looking at small business as well in mid-market. So it's more than just enterprise Right. You know, one of the things that occurs to me kind of circling back on another topic as we're talking about changing and valuation, you're talking about capital efficiency. When it comes to pitch decks and entrepreneurs are pitching you, is there anything that you either are seeing change in the pitch decks around this or that you recommend entrepreneurs include? Like, is there anything about the environment today versus six months from now that you'd recommend entrepreneurs address in any particular way when they're pitching you? That's an interesting one. I hadn't really thought about it much, but I guess it would be helpful for founders to address how they're thinking about this uncertainty in the market. Maybe one slide on how they're thinking about runway and capital efficiency and getting mm. through these uncertain times, because I think that would show that they're, that they know what's going on and they're thinking ahead and they're planning around it. Other than that, I would say, no, there isn't really much that needs to change in the pitch deck, but just knowing that the founders are thinking about that and how they're thinking about it. One thing that we really evaluate at the seed stage is how are founders thinking about their vision and can we get a sense of whether they're able to execute? So this is kind of a similar thing. It's like, how are you thinking about the market conditions and mm. what is your plan to make it through? And do we think you can execute on that plan? So just hearing them talk through it is helpful for us to get an understanding of how they think and how they plan and how they execute on things. Are there any work-related trends that you are maybe contrarian on? And so, you know, one example could be, for example, that you think people are going to go back to office, but I'm not specifically saying that there was for a little while in HR tech, like a focus on, and I know you're not just HR tech, but like chatbots and automation. Yeah. Are there any areas that you look at and you're like, you know what, I just don't think that's the type of thing for us that people might traditionally group under work and work revolution and future of work? Yeah, there's a few. It's interesting you say chatbots because that's one that I... I've never really been a fan of chatbots and I've seen a lot of them. I don't think they work that well from my experience interacting with them, like just as a, a user or a you know consumer on the internet, I've interacted with chatbots and I don't find them helpful. I actually find them really frustrating. So we actually yeah. invested in a company at Vitalize called Zingtree, 
which is a no-code decision tree software. And I think something like that is much more useful than a chatbot. So basically what they do is they make it easy for businesses to have like automate their customer service form on their website, for example. So Hmm. it saves call centers a lot of time because people can go in, type in their question. It'll take them through like a flow and ultimately direct them to the right place, but it's not a chat bot. And so I'm very bullish on like a real business like that, that actually works. Whereas I don't think chat bots, I just, I think it'll be five to 10 more years until they're at a point where they actually can work. Very useful. Uh, Yeah. Another one, I think that when a lot of people think of future of work, they think of these like Slack add-ons. If you know what I'm talking about, like, Mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of them are great, but they're not like what I would consider a business. Like there's a lot of Slack bots or Slack add-ons for checking in on team and how your team is feeling and team culture and things like that. And like, those are great. Don't get me wrong, but typically not something we would invest in just because they're not like a massive idea disrupting something that's really going to become like a huge business. Mm-hmm. I think I think they're useful, but they're not a huge idea, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of two future of work chatbots and like Slack add-ons that I personally probably wouldn't invest in at this point in time. Are you thinking or how are you thinking about Web3 and DAOs, the decentralized autonomous organizations? So we look at a lot of Web3 companies. I am still TBD on how I feel about it and whether I think everyone will eventually make a shift to Web3. Mm -hmm. Um, I think especially when it comes to enterprises, they won't. I think there will be a lot of hesitation to make that jump, you know, they're, they're mm. they all already have kind of their systems and platforms built out in their way of doing things. And it's just going to take a lot for large enterprises to make that leap. So we're, I mean, it's something we're keeping an eye on. I'm talk I mm. talk with companies in the web three space every week. We haven't quite made an, an, well, we have a couple portfolio companies that are starting to like look into the space and dabble in it a little bit and maybe implement parts of Web3 into their existing offerings. But we haven't made any like exclusive Web3 investments just yet. Still waiting for the right one. Yeah, I've seen some, well, old resumes, like sort of like resumes on the blockchain. So that was like a unique set of identity. I've seen some, I guess they're called like bounty boards. In some cases, they sort of like are upwork for Web3 as well. But I definitely have a hard time seeing an enterprise, like an existing large enterprise adopt yeah. these for sure. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting space. We're keeping an eye out on it, but not quite there yet. The creator economy, is that something that you all are looking at as well? Yeah, so that's what I would call the gig economy, the creator okay. economy where... We think it's going to continue to grow. Work made that I mentioned, we just made an an investment in. I think that infrastructure required to support the growth of the creator economy is going to continue to be necessary. So I think we're going to see more companies popping up that are addressing how to best support the creators themselves, tools Mm -hmm. for them to use to do their day jobs. Um, so, so yes, we're, we're watching the creator economy. We think it's going to be huge. We'll probably make a few more investments in it for sure. 
But in sort of these categories that are emerging, I know creator economy is getting bigger and bigger, but how do you think about understanding defensibility? And I think about, for example, and this is like a small example, but like LinkedIn bios, there's like a several companies that are doing yeah. links in a bio. And it's hard for me to see how that is defensible. But I'm curious if you have thoughts about like these fast growing categories. Do you think about defensibility? Do you think it doesn't matter? The whole category gets bigger. Just <laughs> uh, curious to hear your thoughts. Interesting question. I have a similar struggle, to be honest. I see so many of these companies essentially tackling the same thing. It is really hard to figure out which one's going to be the winner and which one has something defensible. We look a lot at data science strategy for us, hmm. understanding how the team is thinking about data science and what they can do with the data that they're gathering is kind of a, a differentiator. And so, yeah, I guess like being first to market is one and then how they think about their data science play is is big for us. And that's that's what would make one stand out to us over another. But agree with you, it's something I struggle with every day. Like some weeks I'll talk with five companies that are literally doing the exact same thing. And I'm like, how do you pick which one is going to succeed when they're all early stage? None of them have a lot of traction yet. Mm. You like all of the founders, like it's really hard to tell oh. what's unique. So I agree with you on that. This data science strategy piece is interesting. Do you do it in all of your companies? Do you do it in some of your companies? And what does that sort of vetting or understanding process look like? Do you want to make sure they have like a data scientist? Do you want to make sure they have good data pipelines? Yeah, I'm just curious to, to hear more about that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of a mix of they don't necessarily have to have a data scientist, but we want to understand their plan for hiring one at some point. So that is part of it but really just understanding how the founder is thinking about it at the early stage. So what is their like step-by-step -step plan to execute on a data science strategy? What exactly do they foresee themselves being able to do with the data that they're gathering? What is the data that they're gathering? What are they like legally allowed to do with that data? Could they sell it at some point? And if so, to who? Like it's a lot of just questions to understand how they're thinking about it at the early stage. There doesn't necessarily have to be something already in place, but it's interesting because a lot of times founders won't have any answer for it. And then for us, we kind of know that they haven't even thought about it. And so it's probably not a fit. Whereas other founders have very clearly taken the time to think about it. It's something that's like burning in the back of their minds. They know how important having that strategy is. And so that that's kind of just one way that we think about it. But it is it is hard at the pre-seed and seed stage because there isn't a lot in place yet at that time. It's more about how they're thinking about it. Understood. So they don't have to have an answer. They don't have to know what it's going to look like, but it's right. really helpful if they've thought about how this is going to evolve and what it's going to look like in right. the future. How do you like entrepreneurs to get in touch with you? What's the preferred way for entrepreneurs to reach out? Good question. We have a um, an inbound form that's helpful if founders apply through there. So I'm happy to share that link. I think it's yeah, on our website. You can put it in the podcast notes. Yeah, if you can put it in the notes, that would be great. That's probably the best way. We get hundreds of applications per month and we review every single one. We kind of sift through if it's a fit or not just based on you know, location, like we get a lot from outside of the US and we automatically know that those aren't going to be a fit for us. If we think it's a massive idea in future of work, we talk with every single one of those. So hmm. the application is probably the best way. We also get a lot of inbound through Twitter. 
but it's often hard to keep track of those. So yeah, I'll share that link with you. Okay, that's great. So you were at GE and then you were sort of in corporate venture and you've now been at Vitalize for about four years. How has your thinking on investing changed? Like what are some of your lessons learned or evolution over the past few years? Yeah, I would say I've developed a lot of pattern recognition over the last, (coughs) excuse me, few years. So in the beginning, it was more me thinking, would I use that? Do I like that tool? What do I think about it? Whereas now after developing all this pattern recognition from four years of looking at investments, it's more of like, what are their growth rates and how does that compare to successful companies that I've seen versus ones Mm. that I've seen shut down? How much runway do they have? Like, how is the founder thinking through their vision and executing on that vision? Because I've seen now hundreds of hundreds and I've seen which ones have become successful and which ones haven't. And so it's less about like, what do I think about personally about the product and more about all these little indicators that I've learned matter. So that's kind of how my philosophy has shifted. Of course, I still, like I said, leverage my experience at GE to to shape my opinion on the product because I have a sense of would a company use this or not. But more and more of my investment philosophy has come down to these indicators that I've, I've just learned from pattern recognition over the years. When you think about things like growth rate, do you have in mind sort of the future of work does the future of work should it grow just as fast as other categories because i know it sounds like obviously you sort of do fintech and martech and you have these overlays is there a minimum month on month that you're looking for do you see differences by industry or category i haven't noticed huge differences by category i think in general companies should be growing 10 at least 10 percent month over month and should be doubling their revenue year over year at the early stage those rate those growth rates will shrink over time as the company scales but in the really early days they should be high they should be doubling year over year or growing 10% month over month they should really be able to do that if they're in the right market and they've built a product that's truly needed those metrics are typically true in the early days on your let's say the fund investments what is more important to you, retention or sort of like new customer growth and sales funnel? Like if you had to pick one, <laughs> may I ask maybe oh. kind of question, you probably, <laughs> so, so pick, like, yeah. go ahead. Oh, well, if I had to pick one retention, but oh, we like to see both, but we, we do dive into like churn. And if, if even one or two customers have churned, we want to know why. Oftentimes there's like a very legitimate reason, like the, the customer was shifting focus or actually the customer shut down and it had nothing to do with the company, the product itself. But we really do dive into churn metrics and understand why customers churned. With the changes in privacy regulation, so California Privacy Rights Act, are you seeing changes in the go-to-market motions of different companies or has it primarily been sales and it's still sales? I haven't really seen a change yet. Although speaking of that, of those changes in regulations, we we did just make an, another investment in a company called Data C that should be announced here in the next week or so. That I think is really interesting because it it basically is a browser extension that sits in the background for consumers, 
and businesses pay for access to their data. And so mm. it's cool because consumers like you or me can get paid and, and pay we're not doing data. anything. I've just enabled it to gather data <laughs> while I'm working or browsing the web in the background. And users right now are making on average $30 a month to just do nothing, but just enable it. But how that law is interesting in terms of impacting that company is it's consumers now much more have to say like, yes, you can have my data or no, you can't. It's much more in the hands of the consumer and less in the hands of the business. And so it's an interesting way for this company to be able to make money for consumers and also for for businesses to have this interesting consumer data that's now going to become harder and harder to get with these new regulations. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, you know, as a performance marketer, the consumer side, I'm seeing lots of changes in how we think and approach this. On the B2B side, it does feel a little bit different. I think maybe there's a lot more worry about the consumer protection, but also the channels for B2B tend to be different from the channels from the the consumer side. You know, a couple of notes I wrote down, and I'm curious because it's been a little bit since I put this together. Are you a golfer? I'm a big golfer. Yes. Okay. Um, What is your handicap? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, not as good as I once was. I'm probably around a 10 right now or a 12. I was a state champion in high school and was. Oh, wow was good back in the day. I don't get out as much as I used to, but still love to play whenever I can. Are you a golfer? Nice. I was in like middle school and high school. <laughs> and then I think it's been much harder now. The other note I have is sailing. So do you also like to sail? And where do you typically go sailing? I love to sail. Similar, I don't get out as much as I used to, but my favorite place ever to sail is a place called Door County in Wisconsin, where I grew up. Grew Mm. up sailing there every summer. And then I used to sail a lot in Chicago when I lived there on Lake Michigan. I've done a little bit of sailing here in the Bay, but similar, just like don't quite have the time that I used to. I would love to to start getting out more. Do do you... Would you go out past the the Golden Gate Bridge or would you sort of stay in the bay? Mostly stay kind of in the bay. Yeah, I haven't ventured too far out. Do do you sail? I I, I haven't really gone sailing. I think I was just curious. Something that I was looking at, there's these sail GP races. I don't know if you've seen it at all. It's sort of these Mm -hmm. F-50 hydrofoil catamarans. And so I think they can get up to like 50 or 60 miles an hour. And they do tours in San Francisco, Sydney, Tokyo, New York, and so took took my kids to watch those in person a couple oh, of times. Right. They have like five minutes of. They've done it. It's typically around Chrissy Field, so they had it like late March, and I think it comes back again. So I'll definitely it's just check it they, out. Yeah, they go I, fast. Um, in college, I actually sailed across the Pacific Ocean for three months from Tahiti to Hawaii. So that was quite the experience, and yeah, yeah I just. I love to go whenever I can. So I'll, I'll have to check that out. Are, are you, because I know you said you sort of three weeks from your, your first child. I know it's a long ways away. Are you thinking about sailing and golf and introducing to hobbies? Oh, yeah. As early as possible. Okay. <laughs> She'll be hitting golf clubs before she can walk. <laughs> nice. Nice. So do you have like a, a play set already? Or is that like a, a present? I need to get one. Get. It's on the list. Yes. Nice. All right. <laughs> 
Well, I, I've appreciated this a lot. This has been a great insight. And I think it'll be extremely helpful for entrepreneurs who are thinking about pitching. And we'll definitely include how to reach out to you in the podcast show notes. I just wanted to thank you for your time, Caroline. Awesome. Thank you for your time. And yeah, we love seeing any pre-seed and seed stage companies that are in the work revolution or future of work. So I will get you that link and thank you for your yeah. time. And yeah, I and, look forward and to it. And I guess 200,000 or more ARR, 10% month on month growth, right? <laughs> yeah, just general, general <laughs> guidelines. Always happy to, to meet with companies sure. that don't meet those, but we certainly like to see that. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks, Kelly. Awesome. 